You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. My name is Darren Noble. Been a part of the chapel for 20-some years. Just love the church and seeing the development and changes through the years. Been involved in from the little ones to middle school to high school to the main sanctuary and I've just really enjoyed watching even our lead pastor today grow to being where he was. He used to be in youth when I was there so it's really incredible to watch what's going on. And recently I had shared with a group of people the idea that you can't outrun the love of God. And true worship to me is becoming more and more into that place where I realize God's love is so immense that all I can really do is thank Him. And this love language that He's given is the worship. And so whether it's in the heart as I'm just working at home or out in the public, I'm sitting at home at the dinner table with the family, or the blessing of driving down the road and being able to see, you know, some bird go flying by. It's incredible to see how God has just created this incredible space for me to live in that says you can't outrun that I love I have for you. Worshiping freely allows me to express to Him, God, you're amazing, you're awesome, you're the best, and you will always be. My name is Darren Noble, and I've been made new. Well, I love that. Well, you guys, my name is Alex Cook. I'm the student pastor here at NCC, and I am honored to share what I hope is a word of encouragement with all of you this morning. Um, When I look out and see this group, when I look out and see this family, I see the capital C church, and it energizes me knowing that there are people who get the mission and the vision of Jesus Christ and what he is calling us to do. So I love you guys as my family. So we were on week two of our series, Made New, and last week, Pastor Brandon unpacked for us what I thought was a brilliant way of looking and understanding our identity as followers of Christ Jesus. And if you haven't listened to it, uh, please go to our webpage and listen to that message uh, because it's going to sort of shape the rest of our time in our Made New series. Brandon gave us three declarations about our identity in Jesus. Number one, I am in Christ. Number two, I am alive in Christ. And number three, I am on purpose in Christ. And if we are missing any one of these declarations, then we are missing what the crux is and what it means to be a Christ follower. When we miss any one of these, then we are being robbed of the beauty and the freedom it means to bear the name Christian. And the rest of our time in the May News series only makes sense and has power when we understand and cherish these three truths about who God says we are. This week we are moving into this reality that when we are made new in Christ, we become worshipers. 
Um, even the word worshiper, it's one of those worship, it's one of those words in the American language um, that sort of has lost its potency, right? We see words like uh, love and, and awesome and wonderful, amazing, all these words. And it's like, are we talking about a galley boy from Swenson's? Are we talking about the God of the universe? You see, the English definition for worshiper is this, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration. It's a good start, but it's not the definition that we often see in the Old and the New Testament. If this is really what it means to be a worshiper, then we could say we are a worshiper of many things. Really, anything that makes us attentive in the moment, we could say we are worshiping them. When I'm watching John Mayer play the guitar, there's a certain reverence and adoration because of his creativity and his abilities. If Tim Tebow walked in the room right now, I would have a sense of reverence and adoration from him because I look up to him. My dad could care less about Tim Tebow. But if Paul McCartney walked in this room right now, his heart would flutter and he'd turn into a teenage child, a giddy teenager. Or even if I'm sitting on the beach of the Pacific Ocean and I see and hear a 10-foot wave crash down, there is reverence for that too. So if this is the biblical definition of worship, then it is a pretty weak one. I would say anybody could worship them. And make no mistake, John Mayer, Tim Tebow, and God are not in the same category of deserving reverence. So if it's not just about respect or adoration or admiration, what does it truly mean to be a worshiper of God? I think we all have our idea of what this looks like. Is it bent knees, hands reaching to heaven, tear running down your cheek while listening to your favorite worship song? Is it fasting and dedicating time to prayer? Is that worship? Is it getting up before the sun even rises with a hot cup of black coffee? Yes, black coffee. Reading the scriptures. Is that worship? Well, before we dive into the definition and and what worship is, I want to tell you a story And I want to ask these questions, and I want you guys to ponder these questions while I'm telling this story. It's going to shape where we're going for the rest of the morning. Here's the question. Is it possible that we have forgotten how to worship because the gospel of Jesus has become dry, stale, and old news? Or scarier yet, do we not worship because we've never really experienced the gospel? I've listened to this pastor named Matt Chandler for many years now. Um, Casey, my wife, would tell you, like, he's my best friend, but he just doesn't know it yet. Um, I love this guy. I look up to him. Um, I've been listening to him uh, for years now, and he tells this, this story. It's an incredible story, and it goes like this. This was the earlier years in his church, the Village Church in Dallas, Texas, and they had a Saturday night celebration service. It was early on, and, and God was moving, doing some incredible things. Like, people were coming to faith. It was crazy. There was these these amazing stories of life transformation. So they decided one Saturday, Saturday night, they're going to have a celebration service. They were going to come. They were going to worship. They were going to be baptisms, a small message. It's going to be a great night, it's similar to the, the night of worships we have here. And he says early on, he sat right up there, like where typically Brandon or the pastor sit. He sits up in the front. And all of a sudden, before the service kind of starts, 
he's sitting up there in his usual spot, and he's, uh, he's praying, just kind of getting excited for what God's going to do in this celebration service. When up comes this disheveled-looking guy, and he grabs Matt, and he says, and, he, and first he gives him this big, this big bear hug, and Matt's already like, this is awkward already. Like, what is happening right here? Uh, guy gives him a big old hug, and then he pushes him back, and he says this. He says, um, Six months ago, I was homeless, but Christ has grabbed a hold of me. But we don't have time for that, um, um, for that today, because I just want to let you know that I brought a witch with me tonight. And I didn't tell her where I was bringing her, and she's really mad right now. <laughs> so I thought I should just uh, tell you in case something happens. And Matt's kind of like, what in the world is happening right now? I just got a bear hug from a disheveled homeless guy that I've never met in my life, and he's telling me there's a witch. He's like, we are ready for a lot of contingency plans here at the church, but we are not ready for Harry Potter just to bust out out of nowhere. <laughs> so he's kind of like, okay, what's happening right now? He sits back, and he's like, he's just praying, like, God, please, like, I'm kind of nervous right now. What's about to go down? Uh, just be with us. Be, with, be in this place. And he sits down. And he's like, well, I'm just going to trust God. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do. So 17 baptisms, all right? They start. And the first baptism story goes like this. It's, it's a lady who gets in the baptismal. She's joined by another, another woman who has been discipling her. And, and the woman says this, I've been practicing witchcraft in the occult for over 20 years now. And I just want to let you know that Jesus is better than all of that. And he has changed my life forever. And the next guy gets up. This is the second baptism out of 17. He says this, I was a drug, I was a drug addict, atheistic Buddhist. And even right there, for my own sake, I'm like, a drug addict, atheistic Buddhist? Is that even like a possibility? Like, atheistic, what? My, my mind's already struggling with that, but I was a drug addict, atheistic Buddhist, but Christ is better, and he has changed my life entirely. I love Jesus, and I'm here to tell you that this morning. So at this point, Matt is pumped. Pastor Matt's like, why would I doubt you, God? Witch comes in. The first baptism is a witch telling this other witch that Jesus is everything. He's better than all things. Why would I even doubt it? Which shows up. An atheistic Buddhist shows up, and he's starting to think, man, like, God, you are moving. We're killing it. This is awesome. God, you're doing something crazy. But the next 15 baptisms went something like this. I grew up in church my whole life. I went to church camp, but I never knew the gospel. I never experienced the gospel until recently. He's thinking, how is this even possible? How is it that you could go to church your entire life and not experience the gospel. How could, you, how could this possibly be? It seems impossible. So he sat down with them, and here's what he learned from them, that most of them did actually go to church their entire life. That was true. And a lot of them did go to Bible-believing churches. It's not like they all went to these radical churches that were really, really far out there. No, it was like hometown good churches in the area. They had been told, don't have sex before marriage, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't listen to secular music, and if you're good enough, God will love you and bless you, and you will be in heaven someday. Some could actually even articulate the gospel. They could say it with their mouth. Jesus, yeah, he died, he rose again for my sins. But the power and mission behind it was just being a good moral person. That was the power 
that they understood from the gospel message. Jesus died on the cross for you. Don't drink beer or chew or date girls that do. Jesus died on the cross for you. Be a good person. Or for the, for the younger ones, hey, do you want to come to heaven with mom and dad someday or do you want to burn in hell for eternity? <laughs> of course they're going to accept Jesus with that ultimatum. No, I think, yeah, hell sounds great. That's awesome. Let's do that, mom. But that's easy believism, and it's not the gospel at all. These things are not the gospel. That is not what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this is concerning, right, when we hear these, these stories. And someone else saw the same exact trend happening in America and decided to do a national survey, and they found that the vast majority of Christians, teenagers and adults alike, defined Christianity as this. This was their definition. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Three, the central goal of, the life, of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is what Christians in the church in America, this is how they defined following Jesus. The researcher called it moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's like therapy for our souls. It's like if you be... If you be a moral person, you get to experience God. That's kind of what it was. And this counterfeit, counterfeit fake form of Christianity is actually the predominant religion in America today. More people in America believe in this than any other belief system. And this fact should sicken all of us in this room right now. So if this is the gospel that we slide into in America, why on earth would we expect anyone to actually surrender their life to worship? Why would anybody want to be a worshiper if this is the case? If all we understand the gospel and Christianity to be is a moral code, then no wonder it has no power in our life. We have no life change from this gospel. We were designed for far more than that. If that's our motive, is to be a good moral person, then yikes, good luck, good luck attacking hell with that fuel. If that's the gospel, I am for sure not giving my life up because that is dull as dishwater. That is terrible. If that's the gospel, and I am in no way motivated to lose my life and take up my cross for it. This counterfeit gospel is a yoke and it is a joke. It's a prison cell that keeps us from freedom. It surely doesn't give us joy, freedom, or purpose in life. It's because it's a false gospel. It doesn't promise redemption. It doesn't come to this broken earth, live a perfect life, die on a cross in place of us, get buried in a tomb, rise three days later, break open the grave, defeat death forever, sit at the right hand of God, give us power by sending the Holy Spirit, set us on a mission worth dying for, and someday come back to make all things new, a perfect bride for her perfect groom. 
This gospel has nothing to do with Jesus. So this brings us back full circle to what it means to worship. So following this moral code isn't worshiping. If that's not what it looks like to worship God, then what does? What does it actually mean if you boil it down to worship? And I would contend that the most simple and accurate of definitions for worship is this. True worship is the response to experiencing the gospel. Let me repeat that. True worship is the response to experiencing the gospel. So if that is what worship is, then true worship is having a gospel posture of life. I think that's what God is calling us to do, is to have a gospel posture of life. That everything outside of us, everything that flows from us, should look like the gospel, the power of our life should reflect the gospel in everything we say, do, and think. So that was a long introduction, but I think it's necessary in order to grasp the full beauty of what being a worshiper actually is. Because if we miss this, then we're missing it. We're missing it as the body of Christ. There's no power. So I want you guys to turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're going to be camping out in a very, very popular um, section of Scripture. It's, called, it's titled The Woman at the Well. Many of you guys have heard this. It's going to be on your screens. But I want you to, to open up your, your Bible um, or your device to John chapter 4. I'm going to paraphrase the story because it is a beautiful story and we, we understand more when we understand the context of what was happening, what Jesus was actually doing in this moment. So John chapter four, we find a very familiar story, the woman at the well. Um, so the first section is this, many of you have heard this. Uh, Jesus is going to Galilee, right? And to go to Galilee, Galilee from where Jesus was, he had to pass through this town, the city Samaria, right? And Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It was even worse than Democrats, Republicans, all these things. Like, they hated each other. They wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't trade with each other, nothing. They genuinely, they hated each other. So Jews at this time would literally walk around Samaria because they didn't even want to set foot on Samaritan ground. That's how much they disliked the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. So the disciples leave Jesus at a well. They get um, to Samaria. So Jesus heads to this well in Samaria. His disciples are going to go look for some food in town. And it's already crazy that they're there. So Jesus is heading to this well to Samaria to get um, a drink of water. Jesus sees a woman alone in the heat of day getting water, which is already, that should just trip our minds a little bit. Like, why is a woman alone in the heat of the day getting water? That's an important and he asked her for a drink. And she is perplexed why he, a Jewish man, would even speak to a Samaritan woman, let alone ask him for, or ask her for a drink. And he says this, he asked her for a drink. And then he tells her about living water. She's confused. How do I get this living water? What does this living water mean? And she's looking down at the well, still thinking he's talking about the well, uh, the water in the well. And he's like, how are you going to get this water? You don't even have anything to, to, to go down and get this water. 
He starts talking about this living water again. And he tells her if she has living water, she will never thirst again and she will have eternal life. The woman is, is taking what Jesus says literally and misunderstands him again and wants to drink this water so she, don't, she won't have to be thirsty again and she won't have to come to, in the heat of the day to get water from this well. That's what she's actually thinking. And then he changes the subject. And it almost seems random that he does this. He changes the subject and he tells her to bring her husband here. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 16 through 30. Follow along with me on the screens or in your device or in your Bible. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I always thought that was kind of funny. He just, he calls her out on her sin, and she just immediately changes the subject. She's like, well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not going there. So, uh, sir, uh, do you guys, Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we say it's this mountain. I think it's kind of funny how she instantly changes the subject. She's a lot like me. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Verse 21, Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That verse gives me chills every single time. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or what are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away in the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The story is incredible for so many different reasons. Jesus decides to go to a place that the Jews at the time wouldn't even step foot. That's like, number one, it's like, that's incredible, Jesus, that he did that. The fact that he shows dignity to a broken woman, a woman with five husbands in the past and one that's not even her husband that she's with right now. This woman being the first person that Jesus reveals himself to as Messiah. Think about that for a second. A Samaritan woman is the first person he reveals himself to as the Messiah, the Christ. But what struck me in this text was her response to this encounter with Jesus. I love seeing what her response was to this encounter with the Messiah that she now knew. If we said worship is the response to experiencing the gospel, then how did this woman respond when face-to-face -face with the one the gospel is all about? So let's look back at verse 28. 
It says this, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? If you're carrying a water jar, why would you set it down? This woman went to the well to get water to bring back home. If she's carrying a water jar, if the, if the purpose of her going to this well was to get water, why would she leave without her water jar? She came to the well to get water to bring back. Why is she leaving with no water in her hands? Maybe this woman isn't walking. Maybe this woman's actually running. Why is she running? What is this woman so desperate for? Why is this woman running back to a town that rejects her? This woman has just had an encounter with Jesus, and in this moment, absolutely nothing else matters to her. She runs into town, and the first and only thing she can get out is, is Jesus. She's, in, she's out of breath. She says, come, come see this man. Her first reaction is to point to Jesus. Everyone knew that who this woman was. She's the woman all the wives didn't want their husbands to talk to or go near. She's the girl in school that everyone uh, whispers about, about what she did at the Saturday night party last weekend. She's the woman that no one makes eye contact with because it's, it's relationally better to have no association with this person. But in an act of remarkable courage, she drops her water jar and makes Jesus known to anyone and everyone she possibly can. And I say to everyone in this room right now, drop your jar. Drop your water jar. Drop it. What is holding you back from remarkable courage? Drop your jar. Swallow your pride. Ask for forgiveness today. Drop your jar. Start praying with your spouse or your family. Drop your jar and do the hard things that the Christian life is calling us to, the things that the world, they don't do. Drop your jar and finally lead your family with courage. Drop the jar and ask the Holy Spirit to go to battle on the specific sin that has been robbing your freedom and joy. Enter in whatever sin that is for you. Go to battle on that with remarkable courage. How was this woman able to be courageous worshiper in boldness and confidence? It was simply her response to experiencing the gospel. She had an encounter with the one the gospel points to, Jesus, and this was simply her response to Jesus. This woman drops her jar and she runs into town risking rejection and total embarrassment. Remember, everybody knew who this woman was. It was very embarrassing to run back in town. This is the kind of woman that came to the well alone in the heat of the day to avoid people. Now she's running back in town risking total embarrassment, just screaming, Jesus, look at this man. And she doesn't even care. She's not afraid to be embarrassed. But because of Jesus, she is unafraid and unashamed to make a complete fool out of herself. And in 2021, looking foolish is extra not cool. No one is posting videos of themselves looking dumb, right? 
I was just on vacation recently. You know how many times we had to redo a family picture because one of us looked dumb? 5,000 times, literally, we had to redo this picture. Because in 2021, nobody wants to look dumb. We want to look cool. We want to look perfect. It's hard. Paul once wrote a letter to, the, to a church whose, whose members were afraid of looking like fools. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this. It's going to be up on the screens. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. Give you a moment to be there. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it Please, God, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, a.k.a. us. Not many were powerful, us. Not many were of noble birth, us. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, uh, are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is basically saying here, hey, look, the things of God are already going to look foolish. When we follow Christ, it's already going to look foolish compared to the things of this world. So let's just embrace this thing. Paul did. And he's calling this Corinthian church, hey, just embrace it. I mean, the things we're going after, after the, it's going to look foolish to everyone besides us. In fact, in verse 31, he goes as far to say, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the Lord. And guess what? Boasting in the Lord is going to look foolish to everyone else in the world. When we boast in the Lord Jesus, it is going to look foolish to everyone else in the entire world. That's a fact. So it's okay. It's okay. Get awkward with talking about Jesus. Get a little awkward. Don't be a weirdo. Don't, you know, howdy doody, neighbor. The sun's great today. Let's worship Jesus. Like, you don't have to be like that. You don't have to be weird. But talk about Jesus authentically like he's not a cartoon character. It's already going to be awkward even bringing the name of Jesus up. Just do it. Let's just talk about Jesus. Practice being foolish for Christ. Practice it. Practice being foolish for Christ. Talk about Jesus at dinner with your non-Christian friends. Talk about Jesus in the stands of a game. It's football season. It's fall sports season. 
Find opportunities to pray boldly with non-believers, non-believers. The ones who it might be awkward to pray with, right? The ones that might think it's foolish to pray to God. Here's a crazy one. Talk about Jesus where you work. Do your coworkers know that you're a Christian? Think about that, honestly. Do your coworkers know that you are a Christian, not a moralistic, therapeutic deism follower, but a Christian? One of the most troubling moments in my life went like this. It seems small. I was, a, I was doing physical therapy at a place called Omni, and we always had these walk-in patients, right? We had patients that would just come through the door. They either came on the wrong day or, you know, something was really wrong and they needed seen right in that moment. And uh, we were already really busy, and nobody liked taking these walk-in patients. Like someone broke their leg, they just got a cast, they needed to train on, the, on crutches or a walker or whatever. Nobody liked taking these patients. But I wanted to honor God with my work, right? I wanted to be the one that's like, you know what? Yeah, I'll take them. I'll do that. Just put them on my schedule. I wanted to honor God with my work. So I took as many of these patients that I possibly could without complaining so that I would reflect Jesus in my workplace, right? And the front desk lady came up to me once after, after one of these, and her name's Angie. She walked up to me and said, I know why you do all this nice stuff. I know why you take these patients. Here's the moment. I'm like, Jesus, yep, she's about to say it. She notices. She said, you just really want to be a good person, don't you? You just want to be a good person, Alex, don't you? She had no idea. She had no clue in that moment. I was too afraid to make my, no, my motives known. Jesus. She thought my God was the God of moralism, of just being a good person, doing the good things. She thought my church was First Baptist of be a good person. But we can do this. We can live a life that potentially looks foolish to others because true worship is the response to experiencing the gospel. And if the gospel makes us look foolish, then I'm all in for being a fool. I'm all in for that. So this woman has remarkable courage. She sets down her water jar and risks being foolish to talk about Jesus. But I often wonder, what if, about this story, maybe in my own life, what if? What if in that moment she wasn't obedient to what God was nudging her towards, running? What if she didn't set down her water and she just walked home and on the way home she somehow convinced herself that this was all nonsense? This Jesus guy, someone, someone told her, told him his, her story. This was nonsense. The simple obedience Simple obedience of setting her water jar down changed everything. In that moment, it was not something insane that she was being nudged by God to do. Jesus didn't say, hey, you have to die for me today. You have to be crucified. You have to give up everything, sell everything you have and follow me right now. He didn't say any of that. 
She wasn't asked to die or be crucified or leave anything to follow him. But sometimes the most powerful thing we can do is to be obedient to God in the small things. One of my favorite books ever is um, by this no-name monk. Literally, he didn't even have a last name. His name was Brother Lawrence. That's just how he was known. He wasn't even popular back then until someone found his, his writings many, many years later. He worked in a kitchen in a monastery. So he was extra nobody. He, was like, he wasn't even a true monk. He was working in the kitchen where all the monks would eat cleaning dishes, and cooking food for everyone else. This book is called Practicing the Presence of God. And in this book, he says this. The time of busyness does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in his great tranquility as if I were on my knees. And it is not necessary to have great things to do I turn my little omelet in the pan for the love of God. What he's dialed into is that sometimes the greatest worship we can be a part of is just being obedient in the small things. Being constant conversation with God, even while flipping an omelet. Worship isn't always this grandiose thing that that we need to enter into. Sometimes it's just being obedient when stirred to maybe turn off your phone or turn off Netflix. Then do it. Be obedient. Reach out to somebody. Maybe God's stirring your heart to reach out to somebody, to encourage somebody. Do it. Do it right in that moment. Maybe it's to get off the couch and help my wife clean the playroom. Maybe that's mine personally. Do it. Do it, Alex. If Brother Lawrence can flip an omelet for the glory of God, I can surely get off my phone, call someone, or help my wife for the glory of God. It's small things. Um, Recently, one of my all-time best friends, I was with him as his mom passed away. It was really, really hard, a hard evening. Um, But early on in the evening before she passed away, we were kind of talking, and I was talking to her husband, and he had said, and she had kind of said, that in these moments, she knew she was going to die. But it wasn't these huge things that she was upset that she uh, didn't do in her life. It wasn't these grand things that she never did. The moments in her life she regretted the most were the small things. She was about to be ushered into eternity forever, but the things that she regretted the most were small, sleeping in instead of going to church. She regretted that. Not praying or reading her Bible enough with her kids. She regretted that. Being too busy for the things that matter. She regretted that. Caring about the things that will someday end up in a junkyard or a garbage dump. She regretted that. It's not complex. Do what he's calling you to do. Say what he is calling you to say, but to be dialed in to his leading, to be inspired, to be obedient in the small things every day, we must have to experience the gospel, the real, true gospel, every single day. We must experience the gospel daily. Not weekly on a Sunday, not on Christmas or Easter, or what, daily. And most times, 
multiple times throughout the day. Simple obedience is our response to experiencing the gospel. It's not easy. I understand this. It's not easy practicing remarkable courage or practicing being foolish for Christ or to practice simple obedience. I know it's not easy. But when we look at the beauty and the power of the gospel, it really is the only right response that makes sense. If God really did set in motion the greatest rescue plan ever imagined and then died for it, then to give our lives and worship to him is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. Everything else falls so short. If you're in this room and you're thinking to yourself, man, if this is what it means to respond to the gospel in worship, then I'm really coming up short. Well, me too. If you feel you're coming up short in this, me too. I think we all do. But what I have found is this. The times when I am locked into being a true worshiper of God, the gospel is near and dear to my heart, mind, and soul. But the times I stray and pull back from courage, boldness, and obedience, it's because other things are occupying my mind more than the gospel. For me, I let anxious thoughts run my mind more than the gospel. I let the browns and the buckeyes run my affections more than the gospel. I let safety, comfort, and security run my heart more than the gospel. So if you want to get in the fight as authentic worshipers of God, then the gospel has to refresh us daily. We never graduate from the gospel, and the minute we think we do, we turn off the power of God in our lives. The second we think the gospel is is elementary, we turn off the power of God in our lives. If we want to live in power every day to do the hard things the Christian life is calling us to do, number one, you have to want it. You have to want it. There are some in this room that don't want it. So don't expect to live a godly life or to expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when you're face to face with God if you don't want it. We have to want this. We want to have holiness and obedience in our life. And two, we must daily ask the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with wonder and love for the gospel. If we're not asking the Holy Spirit to do this for us, nothing's going to happen. We must daily ask the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, to fill our hearts with wonder and love for the gospel every day. We're never going to wake up each day and say, yeah, I'm willing to die to myself and take up my cross today if we're not pleading with the Holy Spirit to do do so for us. It's just not going to happen. So take heart. Be of good courage. Don't be afraid to be foolish for the sake of Christ, our King. And be obedient even in the simple things. Worship is the response to experiencing the gospel. So respond with a life that is surrendered, surrendered to pointing to Jesus. Make today that day. God, I thank you. I thank you for this day. God, I thank you that you haven't just 
left us here, God, but you do love us. You care for us. You seek after us, God. So I just ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would just come upon us and that you would empower us to be refreshed in the gospel, the only thing that has power every day, God. I ask this in your name, Jesus, that you would do this in this family of believers, this church. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.